Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Grizz, commissioning arts editor in the London office. And I'm Lila, the FT's community editor in the New York office. This episode is our summer book special. At FT Weekend, we've just published our guide to the best books of the year so far, ranging across almost 30 categories, from politics, economics and business, to health, music, film and photography. So we'll be talking to the FT's innovation editor, John Thornhill, about his list of the best books about technology published this year. But before that, I spoke to the historian, broadcaster and FT contributing writer, Simon Sharma, in the London studio, about what makes good writing. So, Grizz, Simon Sharma is very well known in the UK, but maybe a bit less so in the US. Um, though I've noticed that when FT editors talk about him, they brighten up, they start to smile. And I wanted to know if you could tell me a little bit about the magnetism of Simon Sharma. Well, um, I think magnetism is the right word, really. It's um it's a combination of his charisma and his knowledge, which goes very deep and very broad. I mean, he writes for the food editor, the fashion editor. He writes for us on the arts pages a lot. He does book reviews. I actually used to work for Simon for a few years as his assistant. Um, so I used to accompany him to book festivals and literary events, speaking about all sorts of subjects, often history, art history. But I once saw him doing a, a live cooking demonstration with Yotam Ottolenghi <laughs> on stage. So that was pretty fun. So he sort of teaches one thing, but it's really about everything. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Um, okay, so Simon recently wrote a piece for FT Weekend called Why Not Be Wordy, uh, which is about how aspiring writers are taught to be concise, but actually that's not always necessary. And actually it might not even be good for the writing. And I really I really liked this essay. It was like so fun to read. And at one point he writes about his love of Charles Dickens, who is famously extremely wordy. Uh, and he, as he describes... Dickens's wordiness, the description itself is all kind of windy and deliberately so in a way that I liked. So um, he writes, I couldn't get enough of exactly the qualities the critics thought most vulgar about Dickens, the gravity defying word juggling, the somersaulting syntax, the tumbling diction, the orgies of adjectives, the manic alternations <laughs> of broad comedy and dismal terror, the whole unembarrassed sense of literature as performance. Yes, that is um, nothing if not abundant as a description. <laughs> I've never heard the word orgy and adjectives used at the same time. <laughs> no, it may be a first. We should also say that um, Simon has just published uh, a book called Wordy, which is a new collection of essays, many of them quite wordy, which cover everything from Falstaff to Leonard Cohen, pomegranates to populism, um, and it's out now. So uh, you brought Simon into the studio to talk a little bit more about his defensive wordiness. I can't wait to hear your chat. Simon, thank you for coming on the podcast. Pleasure, Griselda. So you wrote a piece for FT Weekend recently mm. in which you say that you stopped speaking altogether at around the age of five. I'm Why was that? It's true, uh, because I was the little windbag of the family. I used to recite things like the weather forecast or <laughs> names of flowers in our garden. So I think my father in particular showed me off as a kind of performing pet. And there was a point where I thought, I don't like this, actually. And I just took this kind of vicious retaliation of a speech strike 
So and you I just, just didn't speak at all? No, it's totally strong. Even I was bribed with ice creams and stuff. <laughs> Not a bloody thing. So I went to doctors, speech doctors. And then, then a word which I do remember I learned early on, lockjaw. Um, and this terrified me. Um, so it may have been the lockjaw effect which made me decide to verbalise again. What was extraordinary is that my parents were so incredibly relieved instead of whacking me over the head with a, the telephone book. When you started Just, to speak again. Yeah, yeah. they hugged me and, and took me to the sweet shop, <laughs> which, which I could have. I was even more rotten than I had been, which was pretty rotten. You know, I could have done that again in the expectation of great sweets, <laughs> but I didn't. I, I don't know if I felt the slightest bit guilty. I, I suspect not. But it was sort of a power grab. It was my first possibly only power grab. <laughs> You know, oral retention, really. (laughs) It's a syndrome where children refuse to go to the loo, sort of anal, but I wasn't interested in that. No. It was the other 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 orifice. (laughs) So from a childhood vow of silence to this essay, is this a defence of wordiness? Yeah, it is, I suppose. I mean, in the middle of the essay I wrote is Erasmus's textbook written for students called De Copia for short, which was exactly on the abundant style. And he was recycling Roman writers, really, who believed essentially on diversity, richness, on sort of sensuous recall, on really finding a way to translate the appetite of things into prose. But Erasmus made a very clear distinction between simply going on and on and on and actually being richly abundant. But in this essay, you argue that if you strip away all that stuff, that rich abundance of writing, what you lose is the sense that's conveyed by this build-up of words. That yes, well, I, I, no, I think you also lose the richness of it, I think, and you, you also lose rhythm and melody, all these kind of musical terms, which are really the kind of forward propulsion. And when we think about why economy is often prized over wordiness in writing. Do you think, is, is George Orwell to blame? The idea I think, that don't use a long word when a short one will do. But he's a lyric writer in a lot of his writing. You know, there are moments of sheer, extraordinarily intense poetic description. And in my favourite Orwell essay of all, Some Thoughts on the Common Toad, which is maybe the best thing he ever wrote. Um, <laughs> and it's a kind of hymn to spring. He describes a toad emerging from hibernation, having that self-satisfied look like an Anglo-Catholic at the end of Lent, which I thought was absolutely (laughs) wonderful. But his prose can be extremely exclamatory and a real kind of work of art in the way he kind of leads you along a path which you find yourself gloriously meandering down, really, and wondering what comes next. And what about now? Are we living in a good time for the wordy writer? Yeah, no, I think we are, but not in the Twitter sphere, you know. Um, it's We're living in a kind of golden age of the elastication of English into all kinds of vernacular manners, really, which are quite fantastic, partly because English has become, you know, a global imperial language of infinite possibilities, much of which are being you know, sort of brilliantly experimented with, I think. It just doesn't show up in magazines or newspapers very much. I think it's interesting, though, because with the internet, I remember even maybe five years ago, there was a general sense that um, pieces had to be short and that people don't read long things online. And I think that's been proved not to be true. I wouldn't have been the FD under those circumstances. (laughs) No, well, long form is having a kind of (laughs) renaissance on the internet, which is Well, I think, again, another thing not to be too self-promotingly professorial, I think I do say in the piece for the FT about the etymology of the word 
word essay itself, you know, from the very beginning, in English in particular, there has its double sense, which seems to be a contradiction. On the one hand, it's a trial of something. That's to say that you give yourself the freedom to go anywhere you want to from the opening. But the other translation of essayer is to make a trial proof of um, a bell, for example, has it been properly forged so that the ring is perfect. So you have both these sense of flexible freedom and nonetheless having to make a trial of what you end up with on the page. And I love that. And it's not a contradiction, really. It's a paradox, you know, which is um, what really good essay writers try and do, I think. So, Lila, I'm interested to know what you think about wordiness. Do you think in the age of too long, didn't read, in the comment sections, that literary abundance, as Simon calls it, is kind of out of fashion? And how do you feel about wordy writing? Okay, so personally, I don't really care what's in fashion, but um, I have been thinking a lot about that after reading Simon's piece and what I like, what kind of wordiness I like. Mm. And I really like controlled wordiness, like wordiness I can trust. Um, I had a writing professor in college named Blanche Boyd, who was amazing and a character. And, you know, if you gave her an essay with typos, she would read it and then throw it on the floor and say, do I look like your word janitor? Like she was that kind of person. But the number one lesson I took from her as a writing teacher is that details are great and they're useful and even lots of details are great and useful, but they all have to carry weight. Mm. If you're going to be wordy, all of the words have to be doing something or representing something. They can't only be decorative. Um, but I think that Simon argues that, too. That's what I liked about it. And he said um, all the verbose writers, even at their wordiest, have made every sentence count, every paragraph convey whole worlds of experience. Mm. So, yeah, that's how I feel. Like, wordiness is cool as long as it's on purpose. Yes. No, I completely agree. As long as it's good wordiness. I mean, that sounds obvious, but as an editor, what I take out is bad wordiness, is people being mm. kind of long-winded and faffing and circling around a point rather than just hitting it. Um, but what definitely struck me as being true is what he said about, you know, the music of language. And if you strip everything away, then you lose the rhythm, the rhyme, th that mm. sense of the kind of architecture of, of the sentence and of the paragraph. And that can be what really makes it sing and really makes it beautiful. So, you know, a bad editor could sort of just kill that, really. Right. He he talks a little bit about the elastication of English. Mm. And I'm wondering what you think that means, because I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so what I think that he was referring to there is sort of English that goes beyond English as it is in the dictionary. So this kind of elastication is written language that's infused with spoken language, with the way that people actually sound. So writers like Marlon James, A Brief History of Seven Killings, or going a bit further back, things like Train Spotting, Irvin Welsh. And you can go even further back to, you know, James Joyce. There's right. an interest in, like, how people sound, and that can be so much more revealing, really. I like that image of stretching what is supposed to be literature, what's supposed to be in a book, to be something that's uh, in some ways more informal, but also can feel more true. Mm, and more direct. Yeah, totally. More relatable. 
So next up, the FT Weekend Summer Books issue is a huge hit with readers. It's basically a roundup of the best books this year so far, across almost 30 categories, ranging from politics and economics to science and health, art, music, film, photography. And for each of these categories, there's a list of books compiled by an FT editor or contributor, as well as book recommendations from authors themselves. You can find all of it at ft.com slash summerbooks2019. So we decided to delve into one particular list on this episode, the best books on technology published this year. It was put together by John Thornhill, our innovation editor and host of the podcast Tectonic. John is a fascinating person to talk to about how technology intersects with humanity and society. Every time I talk to him, he makes me think, and we were excited to have him on the show. So let's get into it. Hi, John. Welcome to Everything Else. Hello. Very pleased to be here. So the first thing I want to ask you is that you have an extremely cool title, uh, which is probably the coolest, I think, at the FT, Innovation Editor. And I would love to hear what that means and how much reading books about technology factors into the job of an innovation editor. Well, it is a good question, and I'm still trying to figure it out myself, Lila. The, <laughs> uh, I started this job just over three and a half years ago. I was deputy editor, and I was particularly fascinated by all the debates that were happening around technology, in, in particular artificial intelligence, and thought that we at the FT could spend more time focusing on this because it seemed to me all of the most interesting debates in the world were to do with technology uh, and its uses and its impact. And I told our editor that I didn't think politics really mattered anymore. It was all uh, <laughs> to do with technology. And then, of course, Brexit happened and Trump happened. And our right. editor took rather a dismal view of uh, my previous argument. But I've since revised it to argue that both Brexit and Trump were both the symptoms of the fact that technology is disrupting society. Certainly in the US, there's a very strong correlation between parts of the country where robots have destroyed jobs and those that voted for Trump. And I think the kind of social media discourse that has arisen in the political sphere um, at the time of Brexit and other elections uh, has also been massively disruptive. And so I think it has led to a kind of convulsive change in society and our politics. What you were saying about um, the relationship between politics and, and technology is so interesting because you know, the reason that we wanted to talk about tech of all the subjects that are covered in the Summer Books series is because it seems to reflect some of our most kind of pressing anxieties. And I wondered, is there a sort of dominating theme that you've noticed in this choice of tech books in the year so far? Well, I think since I started doing this job, the whole debate about tech has massively changed. Three and a half years ago, it was very much the cool kids of Silicon Valley. And now the discourse is all about the bad bros of the tech world and its big tech. Um, and they are accused of, of subverting our democracy and widening inequality and eroding our privacy. And we hear the whole time the kind of bad take on technology. It's very much the kind of black mirror view of the dystopian view of technology. And I think to some extent that's justified, but it does tend to eclipse some of the very positive things that are happening in technology and the fact that probably we are living in a safer and healthier and freer world than we have for many years. So, John, I'm curious, as you choose the best technology books of this year uh, for this summer book series, what you look for in a good book about technology? 
I think what I love reading about technology books is that they are mostly writing about the future, how our world is going to change. And therefore, in a way, you've got to try to make it up um, that uh, you're trying to extend, extrapolate from existing trends to see in which ways they are going to shape our societies. Um, and I think that uh, certainly the books that I've chosen have tended to be pretty gloomy. They're picking up on some of the bad <laughs> aspects of tech. And I think the dominant one that uh, I would focus on really is um, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff, which I think really has set the terms of reference for a lot of the debate that we're now having about the power of big tech. Uh, I think that um, we as users of a lot of the social media companies think that we're the customers. But I think she explains brilliantly that we're not the customers, we're the products, and we are being sold to the real customers who are the advertisers of uh, the social media giants like Google and Facebook. It strikes me that it's taken us quite a long time to realise that this thing that we get for free is not actually free. I mean, I think that is the genius of these companies, and they deliver undoubtedly fantastically popular and brilliant services. But I think what Zuboff focuses on is the back end of these machines, the ways in which they capture every click. Um, and they are using that indirectly to sell on to people who want to understand our behaviours, our attitudes, our patterns, our purchasing activity. She makes the argument that it's a radically new form of capitalism, uh, that they are in fact monetizing human attention and human behavior. I think that's, that's somewhat contentious, but it's certainly a very interesting prism through which to view the whole of the digital economy. Isn't there a saying that if you're um, not paying for the product, you are the product? Exactly. <laughs> and that uh, really gets to the heart of what she's uh, writing about. Yeah, I think about that all the time. I'm going back to this idea of the backlash against tech that you were saying that we've seen in the last few years, one of the things that's been kind of levelled at these sort of tech bros recently is the idea that the sort of algorithms and things that they're designing are inherently sexist or at least have these sort of prejudices written into them. And another book that's gained traction this year is Invisible Woman by Caroline Criado Perez. Can you tell us a bit about that one and why it sort of struck a nerve in this way? I think this is a fascinating book because it really does delve into how algorithms are going to be ruling our lives increasingly um, and that we ought to be incredibly careful about how we design those algorithms and what are the data sets underlying their use. For example, crash dummies have always been designed as male, which means that they're not particularly effective for women. A lot of drugs are designed to take into account the kind of male metabolism. All kinds of products that are produced have had massive inputs from a select section of society, uh, not just on gender, but it's also kind of racial and ethnic as well. And I think that she makes the point very powerfully that just as you have garbage in and garbage out of a lot of computer systems, you can also have bias in and bias out. Mm. And unless we are very careful about the way that we design a lot of these products and services, then we are going to build in inherent bias, and this is going to be very disadvantageous to very large sections of the population. John, are there certain people that you would like to put invisible women on the desk of? Like, who do you <laughs> think needs to read a book like this? Well, I think all of the big tech companies are trying to finally grapple with this as an issue. I mean, I remember talking to Martha Lane Fox uh, the other day, who is um, a baroness who is in the House of Lords, who says that the percentage of women in the House of Lords is about 24%. And you don't particularly think of that as a kind of bastion of uh, female 
emancipation, uh, <laughs> it's a lot lower in the tech industry, about 17, 18% in Britain, um, and similarly in America as well. So I think um, there is a real need to try to rebalance the demographics of the tech industry to make sure that we are having better, fairer, more diverse inputs so that we get better, more diverse outputs as well. Invisible Woman is in a way sort of a a depressing read because, you know, she's saying that things are actually getting worse with big tech. But there's a book on your list, The Creativity Code by Marcus de Soto, which I've heard is exploring quite a different world of possibilities within tech and potentially more sort of hopeful ones. Is that right? Yes, I love this book because it's um, both philosophical and uh, technological and very human as well. I mean, uh, Marcus de Sotoy, who's an Oxford mathematician and a great expert and writer about algorithms and computers, um, I think poses this question, where does kind of human intelligence end and artificial intelligence begin? Um, And so his whole book, in a way, is a debate and a discussion of this. Um, And we tend to think that we humans are fantastically creative and we have consciousness uh, and that Computers will never be able to do a lot of the things that we take for granted. And de Soto challenges our assumptions on a lot of these areas. So, for example, um, Johann Sebastian Bach, many people would consider that he's almost the height of musical uh, accomplishment, um, absolute that kind of crystallises uh, human emotion and replicates it in musical form. Well, there are now computers that can do a fantastic job of synthesising uh, Bach's music and replicating it to such an extent that there was um, one of the computer scientists who does this, David Cope, went to a Bach festival uh, and played a piece of computational Bach that, that some of the world's greatest Bach experts were unable to distinguish from a, a real piece, of hmm. a, a, an obscure Bach piece that was played as well. Wow. Um, So if you start thinking about how computers can already replicate music, they can replicate painting to some extent. Uh, You know, Christie's have already sold AI-generated art. To my mind, it doesn't look particularly good, but it shows the direction of travel. And I think I I agree with you about that. (laughs) Um, So I think it's a really interesting investigation into what is truly creative and is non-computable and what can be replicated by machines. Did you find that, John, kind of exciting or depressing? Well, I think one of the points that De Soto makes very well is that we seem to think that this is a great threat uh, and that this is going to challenge our human identity. But he rather wonderfully, I think, opens up the possibility of this enhancing human creativity and that the combination of humans and machines can open up all kinds of new insights. And I think it's this combination of the human and the machine uh, that is really powerful. There's something called Moravec's paradox, uh, named after Hans Moravec, that machines do things well that humans do badly and vice versa. So I think in theory, the two can be very complementary and that we can gain great insights from our use of computers. And that can, in some respects, only enhance human creativity. Mm, That's interesting, because I think we do tend to think of it as a kind of man versus machine thing. And and that's where the, the sense of fear and threat And, you know, that's when we start saying, oh, what about originality, though? And I think the other point that he ends the book on is that um, as machines move towards consciousness, and I 
I'm very conscious that that is an extraordinarily loaded word which will have all kinds of philosophers screaming. (laughs) Uh, But at that point, life becomes extraordinarily interesting because then will machines be able to explain what it feels like to be a machine? Will they be able to write about what their perceptions of humans? I think uh, we move from then a world of purely human intelligence to a kind of hybrid intelligence and then maybe even to a world of machine intelligence, which I personally think would be absolutely fascinating. Is that something that interests you in your own journalism? I'm trying to write an essay at the moment on literature's obsession with artificial intelligence in particular. And it struck me that if you were to summarize the whole sweep of human literature, which is a somewhat ambitious thing to do, uh, (laughs) back in the day, people started writing about gods. We then started writing about kings and queens. And we then moved on to writing about other people. We then obsessed about writing about ourselves. And I wonder whether the next two stages of uh, literature are humans writing about machines, which we are already seeing. And you've had authors like Jeanette Winterson and Ian McEwan writing novels about AI. And then you're even going to have machines writing about what it's like to be a machine. Well, (laughs) (laughs) it's pretty mind blowing, actually. (laughs) It's totally mind blowing. Um, I think if we think about where we are in that, uh, humans writing about machines, I find that in a lot of fiction about technology, there is sort of the moral that there is nothing like a human relationship with another human. And I wonder what you've seen in uh, technology fiction. You mentioned Jeanette Winterson's Frankenstein. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes. uh, um, This is another book I find really fascinating. Um, And she makes the contrast between Mary Shelley and uh, when she was writing Frankenstein and her attempts to create another life form, as it were, uh, with a kind of contemporary scene in which um, artificial intelligence is being created. And one of the points that she makes, and I mean, this comes through her literature uh, all the time, is the question of identity. What is it like to be a human? To what extent is your identity bound up by your gender or your ethnicity or your race? Uh, And she's dissolving a lot of what we would consider to be human identity and suggesting that maybe machine intelligence and machine life forms are a way of challenging human identity. Uh, And she finds that interesting and challenging and in some respects inspiring uh, because it does challenge us to think about what is it that makes us human, how much of that is bound up by a particular identity that is imposed on us from the outside, and to what extent we can create our own identities. It's so interesting because we think of machines and as of computers as these quite rigid, program-based forms. And actually, you know, it seems like what Jeanette Winterson is saying is that we're the rigid ones. We have these very rigid ways of thinking about ourselves and our identities and the, the boxes that we fit into. Um, And in this case, it's the technology that's helping us to break free of that. I think it's also uh, something that Yuval Noah Harari has written very much in his book on uh, Homo Deus, um, is that we're moving into a world where computers will know us better than we know ourselves, by Mm. which he means that uh, from early years, we are going to have a virtual presence, a digital presence, and that our digital presence, this little cloud that is floating around, um, is going to remember absolutely everything about us, uh, what we have read, what we've clicked on, what we found interesting, uh, what we have bought. It is not going to forget in a way that we often conveniently do. Hmm. Um, And so, I mean, uh, Harari uh, makes the argument, uh, should we eventually devolve the power to vote 
to our kind of virtual identity because it will be better <laughs> informed. It will have more memory of who we really are and what might be in our best interests than we are. Should the, our virtual identity choose our life partner, will it not make a better uh, choice than, <laughs> than we are? Wow. Um, and so I think uh, it is that combination of the kind of human and machine that is going to open up a whole new debate about human agency and individual choice. Have you found in your own life that fiction, that art, that things like Black Mirror or sci-fi or whatever it is can help you as someone who thinks and writes about tech to sort of understand it? I think what I find fascinating is this interface between technology and humanity. Uh, I'm, I have to confess, um, and this makes my son laugh all the time, that I'm really not a great kind of technology expert. Uh, <laughs> uh, what I do find fascinating is that it can interface between technology and uh, human beings and how the two interact and how technology changes our behaviour uh, and how we as humans how our abilities can be enhanced by technology. Um, and certainly Google, um, I think Eric Schmidt, when he was running Google, had this really quite kind of stupefying vision that anyone with access to the internet should at some point within our lives have access to all of the world's published knowledge. And that is an amazing, phenomenal thing to try to get your head around, that um, a kid in a remote village in India would have as much access to information as someone who attended an Ivy League university in America. And I think we're only beginning to grapple with what that means uh, to our world. And is there anything in, in the kind of tech writing um, that we've been talking about? Are there any topics that are sort of missing from that body of literature, things that we haven't yet come to terms with that maybe should be reflected in books like these? I think that uh, for the moment anyway, as we were discussing earlier, a lot of the really positive uh, side of technology is tending to get uh, a bit eclipsed at the moment. Um, so th there's one of the books I chose, which is by John Brown, the former boss of BP, called Make, Think, Imagine, Engineering the Future of Civilization. And John Brown, who was a, a kind of uh, really championed engineering at BP and technological progress, um, makes, I think, a very powerful case that we are living in a, a freer, richer, less violent world. And it's technology that has really brought that about. It has enabled an astonishing rise in living standards, an astonishing rise in kind of communication uh, between people. Um, it has... Um, helped expose and counter all kinds of uh, problems, whether it's in healthcare or in education or the way that our societies function. Um, and we stand on the brink of a new technological age, I think, at the moment with artificial intelligence and robotics and gene editing and the possibilities, anyway, for another kind of great leap forward in terms of our material benefit is manifest that there are real possibilities, certainly in the areas like healthcare, which I think are incredibly exciting. But with these incredibly powerful tools comes an enormous sense of responsibility as well. We have to understand the capabilities of these technologies and make sure that we are using them wisely uh, because the ability to go wrong is really very large at the moment. Well, John, every time I speak with you, my mind is completely blown. <laughs> uh, so thank you for joining us. And um, please come back to the podcast again. Well, thank you very much for having me. So, Lila, we've been talking all about words and books. And I wondered what book you'd recommend right now and what you're looking forward to reading this summer. 
So uh, the book that I would recommend is a cookbook, and it's not a particularly original choice for a cookbook, but I am in the midst of a true love affair with it, so I'm going to talk about it anyway. Uh, It is Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat by Samin Nosrat. And it's not a traditional cookbook. You read it cover to cover, or I read it cover to cover in my bed, <laughs> like an old lady. <laughs> and it teaches you the elements of cooking. So like the why. So why does something sear? Like what are the chemical elements that make uh, something boil versus sear versus uh, deep fry? Hmm. And uh, I love it because I was saying before I got it, like I just need someone to teach me how to look at what I have in my refrigerator and figure out what fits together without having to go to culinary school uh, or cook for 25 years. Um, So that's what I've learned. That's amazing. I should get this book. You should definitely get this book. And we should try to have her on the podcast. (laughs) Yes. Samin, if you're listening. (laughs) Um, And then on my bookshelf right now to read next is Fleischman is in Trouble which is the first novel of Taffy Broadiser-Ackner, who's one of my favorite feature writers. Mm. A lot of people know her from some of her celebrity profiles. So uh, she wrote for GQ for many years. Now she's with the New York Times. She wrote that long feature about Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop, where she smoked a cigarette up Gwyneth Paltrow's chimney with her, and <laughs> um, Gwyneth Paltrow like made a very easy meal for her as, as her cookbook says it's all easy. <laughs> um, and she wrote about Weight Watchers and her struggle with weight. And she interviewed Oprah for that, which was so good. And um, uh, she wrote about Chris Harrison, the host of The Bachelor, and Nicki Minaj, who was asleep for three quarters of the interview that she was supposed to do with her. So Taffy just puts celebrities in context, like human context and often in comparison to her as like a foil for the average person. Yeah. And as a foil for kind of you the reader you know I don't I don't love reading about celebrities generally but I really love reading her writing she can make people who I suspect are maybe not that interesting seem like incredibly fascinating and sort of weird totally um and something about the way she writes speaks to how weird fame is Mm. and the humanity of the people who are like stuck in these giant machines yes uh, that I love yeah Uh, So this is her first novel, and it's a portrait of a marriage. Um, Elizabeth Gilbert said that it reminds her of the great novels of the 60s and 70s, that it's just the sort of thing that Philip Roth or John Updike might have produced in their prime, except, of course, the author understands women. (laughs) I was going to say before you got to that bit, I was like, (laughs) really? (laughs) Exactly. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, but that's it. I'm excited to see what that reads like. Great. Well, I'm just about to go on holiday and I have a big stack of books. I actually can't pack all of them. So I'm sort of trying to decide (laughs) at the moment which ones are going to make the cut. I saw on Instagram you put the whole stack on your feed and said, which one should I bring? Yeah. And of course, everyone's given different answers. So thanks, guys. (laughs) (laughs) So what are you thinking? So two that I know I'm definitely going to bring. One I actually just started last night is called Three Women by an American writer called Lisa Tadeo. And it's really beautifully, carefully, kind of surprisingly written. It's sort of literary nonfiction, and it's billed as, this is a quote, a riveting true story about the sex lives of three real American women based on nearly a decade of reporting. People have been raving about this book on Twitter and on Instagram. I think of of the books I was recommended when I posted that book stack this morning. Three Women was the one that most people said, you have to take this with you. 
Um, So I think it's going to be one of the big books this year. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what that's like. So when you say literary nonfiction about three real American women, do you know yet what that looks like? Basically, it's these women are real, but I think she's writing it in a way that is telling a story. That sounds so good. It will be interesting to see what a reporting process would be for writing about women's sex lives. What else are you bringing from the stack? So the other thing that's definitely coming is a personal essay called Daddy Issues by a writer called Catherine Angel, who's a British writer, an academic who I really like. And um, it's published by this press, which is quite new, called Peninsula Press. And I really have enjoyed what they've done so far. They published these, like, literally pocketbook-sized essays. They cost about, I think, five or six pounds each. And really dig into a contemporary moment and write about things that are kind of nuanced and complex. So one was about anxiety and women's writing and the idea of exposure as an author. Uh, That one's Mm. called Exposure. And the one before that was called Mixed Race Superman. And that's taking, I think, Keanu Reeves and sort of looking at him as a cultural figure. And the author is also mixed race. um, And he writes about, he kind of really unpacks all of this. And Daddy Issues by Catherine Angel is, I think, I haven't started it yet, but I think it's an essay that's about sort of fathers and fatherhood, especially post Me Too, but also going right the way back to Freud. It basically couldn't be more up my street. It's kind of feminism plus art plus psychoanalysis. And it sounds really meaty and really great. That sounds really interesting. I like literature and art recently that has been unpacking fatherhood and and son sundom, Mm. I guess is the word, (laughs) and some of the complexities around that and the difficulties of how to raise a son and how to be a father, especially in, um, in a more feminist era. That's it for this week. You can read John Thornhill's list of tech books and find our complete summer book series at FT.com. And you can read Simon Sharma's essays for the FT, including the one we discussed, at FT.com or in his new collection, Wordy. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Thanks to everyone who's gotten in touch. We love hearing from you, and we do answer every message, so please do reach out. You can email the show at everythingelse@ft.com, or you can find us both on Twitter and Instagram. And if you like what you hear, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It's one of the main ways that new listeners discover the show. Everything Else is produced by David Waters, with production assistance by Eileen Rodriguez. We've been Griselda Murray-Brown and Lila Raptopoulos. And our music is composed by Fatim. Uh, okay, awesome. <laughs>
Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. So you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.